We are continuing our series on the cross and what Jesus did for us on the cross. Next week, we'll finish it out with the empty tomb. It's Easter Sunday is next week. We've got three services. You, you should see that in your bulletin already. Um, it's going to be a great day. It always is to celebrate the risen Christ uh, and the difference that makes in our lives. Uh, I want to start by telling you a story I may have told you before. If so, just humor me. But uh, when I was in my late 20s, I was pastor of a little church in a little town, First Baptist Church of Stockdale, Texas. Stockdale is just south of Seguin, just east of San Antonio, and uh, we were there three years, great, great three years, good, good people, and the only problem was the house where we lived, the church parsonage, was on the same plot as the church building itself, made of the same brick. I mean, it was literally like 20 steps away, right next door. This is in a town of 1,200 people, and we were the biggest church in town. So literally everyone in the area knew where I lived. If you don't know why that's a problem, well, just think about it a while. Um, I had this guy uh, named Roy who would come in to see me every once in a while needing help. And Roy was like a lot of people. I think we all have people like Roy in our lives, people who always need help and never really do anything to help themselves. And that can be rather frustrating. But it, it went to another level when Roy came to see me, not at the church, but at home at three in the morning. And, and just, just FYI, I don't wake up well at three in the morning. I just don't. And so I went outside. Uh, I, was, I was so foggy, so murky in my thinking. I, I knew, though, I was smart enough to realize Roy was not in a good place. I, I couldn't invite him in. My wife and my one-year-old daughter were asleep inside, or at least I thought they were asleep. More on that in just a moment. So I kept Roy out on the porch. Um, he was very drunk. He was very angry. He was telling me about his girlfriend and how he found out that she was with some other guy, and he was talking about getting a gun and finding them both and just ending it all. And, and so I stayed out there on the porch with Roy for a while until I'd kind of talked him down, and, and he, he seemed calm and, and, and left at that point. And when I came back in the house, the first thing I saw, I mean, right inside the door was my wife. She had heard the whole thing and had had my shotgun in one hand and a shell in the other. And her, her exact words, I love to tease her about this, her exact words were, I'd be ready if I could figure out how to load this thing. <laughs> and just, just FYI, um, she knows how to load it and she's a really good shot, just so you know. Um, but that kind of shook us up. And then it really shook us up when Roy came back a couple weeks later, again, at three in the morning, again, very drunk. This time I wasn't nearly as hospitable. I said, Roy, you need to come back during the daytime. You need to come to the church, not to my house. Now leave me alone. Go, go. And, uh, he was very angry at me for turning him away. Um, but I knew this wasn't going to end. I knew I needed to do something. So I talked to a friend of mine who was a deputy sheriff. And he said two things to me. He said, first of all, um, if you're ever that scared, the first thing you do is call 911. He said, if you're, if you're scared enough to get a gun, call the professionals first. He said, there's a lot of things that can happen if you pull a gun on somebody. Almost all of them are bad. That should be a last resort. Let us deal with it. Second thing he said was, I know this guy. I'm familiar with him. Uh, he's no count. That's those are his exact words. He's no count. I'm going to have a talk with him this week. And I never heard from Roy again. That talk did it. And I was very relieved. 
And it was several weeks later, once I knew the situation was really over, that I finally told my parents about this because I just didn't want to worry them. But I told them the whole story. And my dad's response surprised me. I expected him to say, well, thank God for your deputy sheriff friend. I'm I'm so glad that my granddaughter is safe. And I'm sure he was feeling that sense of relief. But what he actually said was, isn't it a shame that we can look at someone, a fellow human being, and say they're no good? Isn't it a shame that we can look at somebody that Christ died for and, and just write them off? And my dad was right. We all tend to do that. If we're honest, we all have people that we say, that person is no good. That person needs to be avoided. That person is not on the same level with the rest of us, not worth what the rest of us are. Maybe it's an individual person because of things they've done or said to you. Maybe it's a, a certain kind of person that you don't like, that you've decided is no good. You know, the irony is that there are people in our country today, a growing number of people who would say the same about the people in this room. You and me, they would say, those people are no good. Their religion has blinded them, has given them a prideful, bigoted, arrogant attitude, and they just cause hate and they just cause division, and so the world would be better off without them. And I'm going to say a shocking thing to you. I don't agree with them, but I think they're right about religion. See, the the whole point of religion is to reward good people and punish bad people. And religious people decide on their own who fits into either category. And it is divisive. And it is a a, a force that causes more problems in society than good. The good news is that faith in Jesus is not a religion. Faith in Jesus is not a religion. And I'm going to show you why. In fact, the cross proves why. We've talked already in this series about how the cross is the only symbol for our faith that actually makes sense, that actually communicates what our faith is really about. We talked about two weeks ago how Jesus, in his death on the cross, what looked like the the worst defeat ever, total humiliation, total loss, turned out to be the greatest victory that has ever been achieved. And last week, we talked about how at the cross, Jesus took our place. He took our shame. He took our guilt He made us right with the Father once and for all. He became just in that He destroyed evil, but justifier in that He made us right before God. Today we're going to talk about the miracle of the cross. We're going to talk about how at the cross, Jesus did something that no religion has ever done or will ever do. Something miraculous happened at the cross. And I want to show you in in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. If you'll read there with me. Verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So it starts with the words, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died. And and people ask, well, what does it mean that it was the right time? And some people point to Galatians 4.4. Paul also wrote Galatians 4.4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And they'll say, I've said this before as a preacher, that means that it was the perfect time in history for Jesus to come because it was the first time in human history when a huge group of people, a large mass of humanity was under one common language and one common government in the Roman Empire, which meant there was relative peace, which meant there were good roads, which meant it was the first time in history it would have been easy to spread a message like the gospel. And that's all true, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 5. Because remember, he says, while we were still weak at the right time. It was the right time for Jesus to die because we weren't there yet. We weren't qualified. We didn't deserve it. Jesus didn't wait for us to come to his level. He didn't even wait for us to come close to his level. He didn't, wait, he didn't even wait for us to ask. Do you know that no one on earth, no one who has ever lived, actually asked Jesus to die in their place? He did it anyway. Think about a, a group of firemen who show up at a house that's on fire, and they know there are people inside. Do those firemen say, well, we're not going into those flames unless we hear some kind of signal that those people want to be rescued? No, of course not. And Jesus didn't wait either. Jesus was the ultimate first responder. He came for us when we weren't worthy, when we weren't willing, when we didn't even know we needed salvation. He laid down his life for us. He entered the flames for us. And then it says in verse 7, something a little interesting, seems almost contradictory. It says that we wouldn't die for a righteous person, but some of us might die for a good person. What is he saying there? Well, scholars will tell you that in that context, Paul is using the words righteous and good to mean different things. Righteous, the way he uses it there, refers to somebody like the Pharisees that, that were so opposed to Jesus. People who, if you followed them around 24-7, you'd never catch them committing a sin. They were so morally upright, and yet they also weren't people who you were drawn to. Nobody liked Nobody likes a righteous person in that sense. Nobody says, I want to be like that guy. You admire them from a distance, but you don't, you don't long to be like them. On the other hand, there are people who are genuinely good, people who they're compassionate, they're humble, they draw you in, they bless your life, they make you better. Paul's point is sometimes in certain situations, we might be willing to lay down our life for somebody like that. And we know stories like that, don't we? We've, we hear stories of people who will lay down their life for somebody else who's very meaningful to them. A lot of these stories come from, from war stories where a man will put himself into the line of fire to drag a buddy to safety who's been shot or, or, a, or a soldier will throw himself on top of a grenade so that the shrapnel won't hit his friends or will charge an enemy machine gun nest when he, he and his friends are pinned down. And, and people who've been through combat will tell you, yeah, it's not like when the bullets are whizzing around, you're singing God bless America and you're thinking about freedom and justice in the American way. What you're thinking about is, these are my brothers. These are my buddies. These are the people I've been through training with. These are the people who I've been through hell and back with, and I'm going to do whatever I can to keep them safe. There's that bond, that brotherhood that none of us can understand who haven't been through a situation like that. And I need to say, we love those stories. We can't get enough of those kinds of stories, but Jesus on the cross was not like that story because Jesus didn't die for his buddies. Verse 8 says he died for sinners. Verse 10 puts it even more starkly. It says he died for us when we were his enemies. I don't know any other stories like that. I don't know any stories where a soldier rushes out there to rescue somebody, putting his life on the line, somebody who 30 seconds earlier was trying to kill him. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did. 
He died for the very people who were driving the nails into his hands and feet, the very people who were spitting in his face, the very people whose sin put him there. That's us. Now, you might notice there's a word, a very, very important word I've skipped over. It's a word found in verse 6 where it says, at the right time, Jesus died, Christ died for the really, really good people. Actually, that's not what it says at all. It says, Jesus died for the people who liked him, who liked him a lot and were totally devoted to him. No, that's actually not what it says either. It says, Jesus died for the people who may have been bad then, but he knew they had potential to really do great things for the kingdom in the future. That's also not what it says. It says, Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. That is a shattering, staggering statement. That that is a statement you won't find in any religion that has ever been created. There is no religion on earth that is made expressly for the ungodly. None. Period. Religion is for good people. It's for people to set themselves apart from those who are bad. But Jesus says to the people who, who are on a higher level morally, people who are blameless and perfect, He says, well, I've got nothing for you. I'm only here for the sinners. I'm only here for the broken. I'm only here for the ungodly and the wicked. If you're perfect in your own eyes, you don't qualify. He's here for the ungodly. And that that truth is so hard for us to grasp. We need some stories to wrap our minds around it, especially if you've been in church your whole life and you've heard the story of grace. So there's a story I love in this regard, and it's by a preacher named Tony Campolo. Some of you are familiar with Tony. He tells it a lot better than I can, and if you want to hear him tell it afterwards, not now, afterwards, you can go on YouTube and look up the words party with prostitutes. Yes, you heard that right, and and you'll hear a great story, but you don't have Tony with you today, you got me, all right? So I'm going to tell his story for him. So the way the story goes, Tony was preaching a, a sermon in a place far from home, a big city far from home, and late one night, couldn't sleep. He's walking the streets. He finds an old greasy spoon diner. He goes inside. He orders coffee and a donut. He's the only person there. But a few minutes later, you hear the little bell as the door opens and in walk three women who are very obviously, shall we say, working girls, right? They come in. Their dress is provocative. Their language is very vulgar. They sit at the bar right next to Tony. He's feeling extremely uncomfortable, but he can't help overhearing their conversation. And one of them speaks up and sort of randomly says, hey, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39 tomorrow. And one of the other ladies, after a while, just sort of sarcastically says, so what, Agnes? Do you want us to buy you a cake? You want us to sing to you? You think we're going to throw you a party or something? And Agnes says, well, of course not. I've never had a party in my life. Why would I have one now? And after a few minutes, they get up and they leave. Now, Tony's been staying this whole time because he has a question to ask the guy behind the counter. And after the, after the three women leave, he asks him, he said, hey, buddy, do you know those three women? He says, yeah, absolutely. They come here every night around this same time. And he says, well, did you know it was Agnes's birthday tomorrow? He says, no, I didn't. He says, I've got a proposal for you. What if I throw them a party tomorrow right here? Would that be okay with you? What if I throw a, a surprise birthday party for Agnes? And you can see this, this fat little cook. He, he's sitting there, and this little smile starts to spread across his face. And he says, yeah, I like that tell you what, you get the decorations, I'll take care of the cake, and we'll make it happen. So the next night, well past midnight, Tony shows up, 
the whole place is decorated. The other guy, the cook, has done his part. He's apparently notified every prostitute in the city because the place is packed. (laughs) And so when they hear that little bell and in walks Agnes and her two friends, they all shout, surprise, and her face is just a picture of shock. And she sees the sign that says, happy birthday, Agnes. And she sees this cake with 39 candles blazing away. And and when everybody starts singing, happy birthday to you, I mean, this is a woman that's been on the street since she was a young teenager. This is a woman who's tough, who's hard, and yet she just melts. I mean, just dissolves into a puddle of tears. And the cook says, come on, Agnes, get yourself together. You need to cut this cake. There's a lot of hungry people here. Come on, cut the cake. And Agnes Wipes away her tears and, and she, she, sorts, she sort of stumbles and, and says, thank you, but w- would it be okay, would it, would it be all right if, if I just took it home, if I just kept it for a couple of days first? Is, is that okay with you? And the guy says, well, yeah, sure, Agnes. She said, it's, it's, my house is just down the block. I'll be right back. And he says, it's your cake. You do what you want. And so she scoops up the cake and she walks out like she's holding the Holy Grail, and the the crowd just sort of parts for her like the Red Sea, and she she goes out the door, and when the door closes, everybody's quiet. They don't know what to do, and so Tony says, hey, everybody, let's pray. And so, most unusual prayer meeting ever. Everybody bows their heads, and Tony prays for Agnes, and he prays for her salvation, and he prays that God would would show her a better life and would, would be good to her and to all her friends. And when he says amen, Little cook goes, hey man, you didn't say you was a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to anyway? And y'all forgive me, I'm, I'm going to quote him directly. He said, I go to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at three in the morning. And the cook is kind of stunned. And then he says, nah, there is no such church. If there was a church like that, I'd join it. And Tony says, wouldn't we all? Because that's exactly the kind of church that Jesus came to start. And when you hear that story, I hope it leaves you with a question. And the question in your mind, I hope, is, well, then why aren't we seeing more Roy's and more Agnes's coming to our church or to other churches? How come we're not seeing them come in and dissolve in tears when they realize that they're actually loved just as they are. And I don't know how to answer that. That that is honestly one of the questions that haunts me. I think there's a part of it that's because we've convinced ourselves that we need to avoid the Roy's and the Agnes's of this world and that doing so keeps us more pure. And y'all realize, don't you, that that's religion talking and not Jesus at all, that that's the kind of person Jesus spent time with? I think there's another side to it also. I think, I think maybe the Roy's and the Agnes's of this world, honestly, they look at us and they think, well, I could never be like that. I'm too messed up. I'm too broken. I could never get myself together like those people have gotten themselves together. And that just says that we've failed to communicate the gospel. Because the gospel says the honest, simple truth of the gospel is that at the foot of the cross, there's not a nickel's worth of difference between Agnes and Roy and me. And you, that we're all ungodly. Jesus died for our sins when we were his 
enemies. He died for Agnes's sexual immorality and Roy's drunkenness and my pride and my self-centeredness and, and a thousand other sins that I don't need to tell you about. He died for the ungodly, and that's every single one of us. That's, that's Mother Teresa, that's Billy Graham, that's your sainted grandma, that's your teacher, that's your parent, that's you. He died for those who couldn't take care of themselves, who wouldn't take care of themselves. He died for us, and that means that nobody here, nobody who's ever lived, has any right to feel superior. And that means that whoever it is, when a moment ago when I said, you've all got those people we look down on and we say they're no account, whoever that is for you, whenever you think about that person or that group, whenever you are aware of them, that means you ought to look at them and say, Jesus died for that person. Jesus died for him. Jesus died for her. Jesus died for me. And that's not all. That's not even the biggest miracle of the cross, because go on in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1 goes on to say, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? See, this was the, this was the question they kept attacking Paul with. Paul was the one who kept telling people, no, it's not by works, it's by grace. No, it's not how good you are, it's how good Christ is. And people would come back with, oh, so that means that you're going to get out of jail free card so you don't have to change at all. You can just keep on sinning and God's just going to keep on forgiving you because that's what he does. And so that's what Paul points out in verse 1. Should we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, why does Paul bring up baptism here? You might be thinking of baptism as just sort of a religious thing you have to do, just sort of a box you have to check. And I know that we, as Baptists, that's one of our key doctrines. And you may be aware, some of you are, especially if you came from a non-Baptist tradition, that you can't join our church without going through believer's baptism by immersion. If you did it at another church, that's fine. But if you didn't, we want to baptize you. You have to be baptized as someone who consciously believes in Jesus, and you have to do it by the method of immersion. And, and if you come from a, a non-Baptist Christian tradition, that often strikes you as really legalistic and hard-nosed and unnecessary. But here's why we insist on that. First of all, if you were baptized as an infant by your parents in a Christian church, we don't denigrate that at all. That is a beautiful thing that happened. That was your parents standing before your church family and saying, this child we are offering up to the Father. We are dedicating him to the Lord. We're dedicating ourselves. We're going to do our best to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And we're praying that the Holy Spirit would guide them. And we're praying that when they are old enough to choose Christ for themselves, they will. That is a beautiful thing. We, we do a similar thing here at our church. We just don't do baptism with it. We call it baby dedication. But in the New Testament, every time baptism happens, every single time, it's a person who has chosen of their own accord to be baptized in the name of Jesus. They are signifying something that has happened in their life, a change that has occurred in their life, and they do it by immersion. Why? Because as Paul says here, it symbolizes something beautiful. It symbolizes the old me is dead and buried, just like you go under the water. The new me is here. I am a new person in Jesus Christ. I'm not the same one I was before. As Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. The person you are can't get there, but the person Christ can remake you into can. 
And that's why every time we baptize somebody, we celebrate, not because they've joined our church. That's a great thing. But we celebrate because they're signifying a miracle, something no religion can accomplish. And that is that an ungodly person, a wicked person, a person who could never get into the presence of God has become clean, has become new, has become someone completely different. And that's beautiful. That's a miracle. See, salvation doesn't just make us fit for heaven. It changes everything about us. Only the cross can do that. Religion can't do that. Think about Paul. I mean, we could tell stories, right? We could pass the microphone around and, and people in this room could, could stand and, and tell, here's what Jesus has done for me. Here's who I was and here's who I am now. And I'm not there yet, but I'm getting there. We could tell those stories and, and it would be fantastic. We just don't have time. So I'll just tell you one story. And that's the story of Saul, Saul of Tarsus. Nobody was ever further away from salvation in Jesus Christ. He was that righteous man that he mentions in, in verse 7. He was that guy who said, I don't need a savior. I'm good enough. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm keeping the law flawlessly. And that religion filled him with so much arrogance that he hated anybody who didn't believe like he did. Hated them enough to kill them. He was literally killing the people of God. And then he becomes from a proud bigot to a person who believes there's nothing more beautiful than when two races come together in Christ. From a guy who thought, I don't need a Savior, to a guy who says, without the grace of God, I'm lost. Goes from a guy who preaches nothing but law to the man who above anybody else who's ever lived told us what the gospel really means. Religion can't do that. Only a crucified Savior can. Do you have that kind of story? It may not be as spectacular as, as Paul's story. I don't expect that. But do you have a story where you can tell, here's the difference Jesus has made in me. And it's a lot more than I started going to church on Sunday mornings and I stopped using a, a few bad words. If you don't have that story, you need that story. Something needs to happen in your life that only Jesus can do. And come talk to me as soon as this is over. We want to help you experience that. But there's one more thing. See, there are probably people in this room, in fact, I guarantee there are people in this room who would say, yeah, Jeff, I get what you're saying and I believe all of that. In fact, I've prayed the prayer. I've gotten baptized. It's just, I don't see a change in me. It's just, I keep stumbling into the same old sins over and over again and it's frustrating and it's embarrassing and I don't know what to do. Is it just that grace doesn't take in my life? Is, is there something about me? And here's where we as Baptists and other evangelicals have done you a disservice because we focused so much on make a decision, walk that aisle, get baptized. Because can I be honest, we, we preachers have egos and we like to be able to say this many people walked the aisle, this many people got baptized. So we emphasize that one-time decision and not to denigrate that. That's beautiful. The day you accepted Christ, you were saved and you always will be. But the Bible has a different story. The Bible says that salvation happens in a moment but transformation takes a whole lifetime. And you don't hear that enough from us. And the scripture is all over that. 
You don't just need the blood of Jesus on the day you receive Christ as your Savior. You need the blood of Jesus every day. You need to go to the cross every single day of your life. See, being a good religious person can, can give you some good rules to follow, rules that come straight from God, some, some doctrines that are eternally true, some stories that will inspire you, a group of people who will encourage you. That's not nothing. That is significant, but it's not enough. You need the grace of God. And let me explain what, that, what I mean by that. When I get over myself enough to just kneel at the foot of the cross on just any random day and I become aware of the fact that Jesus hasn't just forgiven me of my sins, my sin is still there. I'm still messed up. I'm still that guy that is just too selfish to really be the husband and father that he should be. The guy who's too lazy and worldly minded to be the witness that I should be. The guy who, can I be honest with you, can you just not tell anybody I said this? The guy who about half the time when I'm up here preaching the most important words that have ever been spoken, about half the time there's a big part of me that's more interested in impressing you than in glorifying God. And I know that kind of stuff is in me and there's a lot more where that came from. And so I have to get before the Father and I have to kneel at the foot of that cross and say, Jesus, I still need your grace. Please cleanse me. Please send your Holy Spirit to change me and get me just a little bit closer to your character. And that's going to go on as long as I live. But every time I kneel at the cross, I get a little bit closer. And that's the way we're meant to live. Not walking around proud, not all buttoned up. Yeah, you may have your, your, uh, your baby blue blazer on the Sunday before Easter, but you're still a sinner. And you still need the grace of God. And you need it as badly today as you ever did. So go to the cross. Galatians 6.14, I saw this scripture this past week and it just hit me in the heart. I'd never really paid attention to it before. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And I recognize I can't say that's true of me. I can't say that the only thing I'm proud of the only thing I boast about is Jesus died for me. I can't say that the world has been crucified to me and I to the world because there's still so much about the world that draws me. But I want this to be true of me. In your, in your worship guide today, uh, by the way, every week there's a little article in there that I write. It doesn't matter whether you read it or not. That's not the point. But there is a prayer in that article every week. And I'm hoping you will pray along with me. That we as a, a people of God can be praying together for a solid week. I think that's going to be powerful. This week, it's this scripture. Lord, make me the kind of person who boasts only in the cross. Lord, crucify the world to me and I to the world. Jesus, keep me near the cross. For there, a precious fountain, free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. Till my ransomed soul shall find rest beyond the river.